This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Sarah Bailey, author of The Housemate, talking to Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction there, Sarah Bailey, to tonight's episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. Hello to you all listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. I don't know if I need to introduce myself now, if my left floor's voice already kind of introduces and identifies me, but either way, I am your host, Samuel James Elliott of the Right Way Podcast Program, and the person whom you just heard introducing this particular episode is none other than tonight's guest of this particular episode, whom is Sarah Bailey. Sarah Bailey, I believe it's fair to say, is fast becoming a host, household name, I should say, in the realm of Australian crime and thriller writing. Uh, those of you in the know or have not heard the name already, Sarah is best known probably for her trilogy of the Gemma Woodstock trilogy, uh, which is a trilogy of books surrounding the uh, goings-on of the lead character Gemma Woodstock. So they, that was kicked off with the debut novel, The Dark Lake, which was uh, published in around 2017, I think, and the winner of the Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction and the David Award for Best Debut, followed then by the follow-up to that, which was Into the Night, and then finally Where the Dead Go, all surrounding Gemma Woodstock. That was the, the trilogy there. But tonight, what I discussed, what had the good fortune of speaking to Sarah about, was her first uh, standalone book, The Housemate. Uh, without giving too much away, I believe it's uh, kind of the relentless sort of pacing in which those that have already picked up Sarah's other, uh, or the trilogy of Sarah's other books uh, have probably come to know and love. So it's centred around uh, a trio of women that all share, uh, young women that all share the same house, a share house, and uh, kind of a horrific grisly murder that arises or opens the, the book and then delves into from there or is followed into or investigated by Ollie, the lead sort of journalist attached to the case or attached herself to the case, kind of uh, befriending and then conscripting uh, or not conscripting but forming an alliance with a kind of a new up and come within the journalism world, albeit kind of emblematic of a representative of the new type of journalism, which is the podcasting sort of uh, sphere, Cooper, as they then investigate this uh, very densely layered onion of a case. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think that Sarah will probably speak for her work much, much better than I possibly can give it a summary of it. But yes, please all give a big digital round of applause to the lovely Sarah Bailey discussing with me her first standalone novel, her latest work, The Housemate. Sarah Bailey, thank you so much for joining me tonight on the Right Way Podcast Program. How are you going? I am good. Thank you very much for having me on your program. So happy to have you. First question, burning question that I didn't want to ask you before I started recording is, have you now got a proper desk and chair to write at? Because when I met you, albeit got to hear from you speaking when you were in uh, Bardo, you are McDonald and Catherine's class. Um, I heard that you're, you, I think you're, you mentioned that you were sitting kind of like on the floor in a room to, to write your novels. I have not yet got a proper desk. I, um, I am now working from home mm. all the time, so not just writing but also my, my other job. Um, so I don't tend to do that from the floor because I'm normally in video calls all day, so I've commandeered the, like, kitchen table. Mm. Um but I just tend to move around the house to wherever there is a PowerPoint, to be honest, and I still do most of my writing, creative writing, um, 
in my room, either in bed or on the floor near the heater. So, yeah, no desk, no desk just yet. <laughs> Maybe next how's the, year. How's the back going then? Is it all right or is it still a punish? Mm, it's not It's not the best, but um, I'm not sure if that's the writing or if it's sort of um, something else. I don't know. It could be just old age, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Look, let's let's get let's get stuck into the nitty gritty. And a question I always like to start off with is, uh, where did the idea for the housemaid first originate from? Because I saw in the acknowledgements, and I was always I always find the acknowledgements really interesting. But you said something like you had it rattling around your brain for several years, and I'm like, whoa, that sounds really interesting. So tell us a little bit about that, Sarah. First of all, yeah. So I think I was in the process of drafting where the dead go, which is the third book in my trilogy series that I've written and I and I sort of had this um, idea concept I guess that was all around the idea of a group of people that went to a dinner party and it was sort of a closed room murder mystery type situation and I really liked the idea of it and there was a couple of characters that I sort of were, was playing around with but I just couldn't kind of stretch it out I guess and make it work as a standalone story on its own and I wasn't really paying it a huge amount of attention either because I was um, desperately trying to finish this other book that I was writing. So I sort of parked it and then picked it back up again once I was in final stages of that book. Still liked the idea but just couldn't really kind of get it to stick. Thought about bringing Gemma into it and actually having her be sort of the cop that got involved in investigating, you know, the murder from the dinner party and that didn't work with timelines and things either. Uh, so I sort of moved on and, and was thinking about another idea where like a journalist sort of picked up where a dead cop had left left off um, and sort of retracing the footsteps of, um, of a, a detective. And I ended up kind of mashing the two stories together, I guess. So I sort of had my my crime and my premise in the dinner party gone wrong or the party gone wrong and then yeah sort of found like a journalist vehicle in ollie groves which is the character in the housemaid and sort of yeah brought those two storylines together so that was the history of the all the stuff that happened in my head before i wrote it down <laughs> slow process all aggregating into what is now the housemaid so another question burning question i was like i'm so interested as to why why was it said i mean obviously there's two timelines 2005 but 2015 why 2015 Sarah I was, I was so interested in that because I was like oh there's got to be a reason why yeah so the reason is all around podcasts yeah so I wanted to well, have I, I didn't yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't want to have a podcast story I sort of I did mm. think about that but I, I sort of had enough I guess already with the rest of the the plot that I didn't want to bring a pure podcast story into the mix but I mm. liked the idea of having like a, a subplot I guess um, and I thought that it would be interesting to do it at a time where podcasts weren't necessarily just a given like they are now. Mm. I mean, no one would bat it now if, you know, if you said you were going to start a podcast, people would go, yep, cool. Um, whereas I think that there was a very short span of time ago where that wouldn't necessarily have been greeted with as much sort of enthusiasm, particularly in like a high profile um, media um, outlet. So it really like it's grown and scaled so quickly um, that even though 2015 wasn't that long ago, uh, it was a lifetime ago in the world of podcasts. So I kind of found the, the tipping point where there had been some success, so it wasn't like a wacky storyline, 
but it wasn't so mainstream that people were kind of all doing it and it was really, you know, kind of part of um, part of the media landscape um, proper. So, yeah, that was the 2015 um, sort of reason. And then, yeah, I, I, the split timeline, I wanted it to have been sort of at least 10 years before so that enough could have happened that it was different. Yeah, spot on. Okay, I did, I did wonder at that and I was like, oh, okay, maybe that is... It's, and because obviously, yeah, within the media organisation that um, Ollie and Cooper work for, it makes perfect sense because it was still at a time when it was relatively in its infancy. It wasn't entirely novelty, like you said, making it this kind of like storyline, but it was still something that I presume in the more sort of ingrained, entrenched ways of the media, they would probably be some people that would meet that sort of uh, emergence of a podcast of scepticism, such as potentially yeah. probably with Ollie there. There's yeah. one point early on where it's mentioned about how the case of Nicole and the, her housemates uh, has captivated the Australia's collective psyche, like the Beaumont children's case or Azaria Chamberlain. And I liked that line that kind of stood out and I thought it kind of like online the rest of the story. And I want you to talk a little bit about that as well as to what this sort of case is that uh, kind of gets so caught up in the Australian, Australia's collective psyche like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a tricky thing to talk about because you know it is real crimes and mm. real people I mean my, my story is not but the other stories referenced in the book certainly are um, and I just think that it is a, an unavoidable truth that some stories just capture people's attention I think it's for a whole different raft of reasons and mm. you know there's lots of analysis I know done on the profile of a victim and if they're white and female they'll get lots more coverage and I think that is um, well, undeniably true but there is also I think other elements to stories that get into people's um, psyche and consciousness in a way that is is kind of unpredictable and sometimes it's a, an oddness to the crime and people are just genuinely curious because they can't work out what happened and it just it's like a good book. It really captures the um, the brain's kind of attention because everyone just wants to figure out the puzzle. So there can be sort of just a strangeness to something and that's why it ends up in the headlines. Um, I think it depends on like the profile of the person and if they were well known or if it feels like something that's really out of character. I think then, you know, you've got this sort of really conflicting account of who this person seemed to be but perhaps who they were mm. um, and then you've got I just you know there's obviously just really sad stories as well where people just I think project what they would feel or do or think in that situation and that's just a, a genuine sort of um, an empathy attention mode that we go into so yeah I mean different stories have um, captured the attention of people for all of time and whether it's like in a large profile way that we've got now where we can broadcast media and it can you know cover headlines for days in in all different kinds of channels or whether it was a sleepy town with no media hundreds and hundreds of years ago and everyone talked about it it hasn't really changed i think it's just the the tools and the um the way that we can keep a story in orbit is different now but the human fascination with story and storytelling, whether they're real or not real, I think is sort of just innate in us. And some just um, have the right mix of intrigue that people want to keep talking about it, I think. Very much so. And I also think that it kind of, and something that I felt you, you did quite well in the housemate was there was the depiction of the, I feel that it was the almost a mob mentality in the way in which it's consumed. So it's, 
no longer an interest in the narrative or what actually happened, but the craze within the craze itself. So it's kind of like this resurgence of the details don't matter. And there was one particular line, I think it was TJ that said it, where I can't for the life of me remember the details of the case. I just, just remember the case itself. What do you think that is? Because that's something that's kind of conversely, it's no longer related to the truth of what actually happened and wanting to find out the truth. It's more just a response to this kind of uh, latched onto this sort of craze within the media. Yeah, it's. I think it's um, it's a modern day form of gossip in a mm. way. And yeah. it's, sort of, um, it's a little bit, I think, linked to status as well, where you've got to kind of know what's going on and information is is power and little nuggets of extra information means that you can bring something new to a conversation. So I think, um, you know, when people are consuming media stories, there's an element of, have you have you read that yet? Have mm. you seen that story? Yes, I've seen it. Oh, did you know, though, that the neighbour saw the husband do X, Y, Z? Like it sort of, it builds and people want to know all of the different extra bits and pieces of layers that perhaps weren't, you know, served up as easily on the mainstream platform. So there's, you know, there's obviously people that dig really deep into stories and they um, spend a lot of time finding nuggets of information as if they are sort of detectives themselves. Um, and then they, I think, you know, genuine, genuinely enjoyed talking about that stuff. So it's a, it's a, you know, people have often sort of said that that kind of media is a bit of a tr sort of sport in a way and it kind of does kick into the same um, entertainment area where I think people are getting quite a lot of in, in enjoyment out of kind of investigating and finding stuff out. So I, just, I think it just triggers lots of psychological sort of um, insights that, that we apply to other things in our life, but sometimes it's just a bit murky because it happens to be based on real things happening to real people. Yeah, and where's the, where's the line to distinguish that or where is that sort of kept in check of a person that's consuming it? Because I think that's something that I also like that you'd like, at least at one point, was Ollie and Cooper. I think that they checked out a Facebook page or a Facebook group that was sort of dedicated to, to the case. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really, really good sort of telling sort of commentary on the situation there, as well as what's probably worsened in the, you know, what, eight years my, my timing's off. But since 2015, it's gotten even crazier like that. And it's, it's, it is a case of... Um, completely disassociate, dis disassociating any sort of uh, actual human quality with the, just the, the hype of the case of being attached to it like that, such as we're now seeing with internet sleuths. It actually reminded me, Sarah, a little bit of um, the Cecil Hotel documentary on Netflix that I watched not that long ago. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it was that as well, where it was like a person has, has died tragically, mysteriously, and then that was a case of no longer kind of fixating on the or finding out the truth. It was more just kind of being swept into the hype of everything that had kind of surrounded the case and all the sort of macabre goings on. Yeah, I think um, I, I haven't seen it, but I know I know what you're talking about, mm. and I, I know that that got a lot of criticism for that kind mm -hmm. of sensationalised kind of approach to it. But... um. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reality is that because the internet serves up so many um, names and faces and people and profiles and they, it does tend to tip into a, a world where people don't feel real and they kind of, they're characters because you're never going to meet them. Um, it is sort of similar to reading a story um, from a, you know, genuine perspective in the sense that you, you've kind of got the same relationship with these strangers on the other side of the world. So, yeah, I don't think it's good and I don't think it's um, something to be kind of encouraged but I think 
I can understand why people are interested in these stories because everyone's just always trying to figure out why people, you know, do the things they do. And crime is is the most kind of, um, you know, genuine sort of baseline level of how you can ask those questions. So, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense, I think. So true. So we talked about like the internet sleuths and how there's sort of no real sort of checks in place for that. Let's talk a little bit about Ollie then, because Ollie's still one of the, I don't want to say old guard, because it's still, it's not like like uh, print journalism has been completely eradicated, but in terms of what she does, and there's one point that she said something quite interesting, and I, it's kind of almost along the lines of what we sort of touched on there with like a failure to appreciate that there's a loss of human life in certain cases, is that she says, I wrote it down, I can't even read my own handwriting, but it's talking about how she believes that by her own reckoning, she lacks the ability to be the ultimate journalist, shutting out emotions, shutting out all emotions. And I was like, wow, okay, that, that, that's accurate there because tell me a little bit about, tell this to Sarah about what that exactly means or how she perceives that within her own self. And, and she's presumably obviously feeling that she's one of the good and legitimate journalists and still believing that that needs to be shut off all the sense of emotion. Yeah, I mean, I think Ollie thinks that she's got a lot of insecurities in some mm. ways, but I think she does think that she's a good journalist with kind of good intentions, trying to do the right thing by the people in the story and the story itself. So I think she thinks she walks a pretty strong line between those two um, responsibilities. Um, I think she thinks that there's journalists out there that are far more ruthless than she is, so people that are kind of all about the story, don't think about uh, the victims or the the people sort of that lives are being upended. Um, and I guess that's how she uh, feels she can live with the sometimes questionable things that she does have to do to get her job done. But, I mean, I think it's similar to police and other people in emergency services where to some extent they do have to block out Mm. uh, the empathy and the emotion that they're experiencing because they have to get the job done. And to get the job done, you can't fall to pieces, you can't project too much into the situation and make it, you know, sort of about you and your world. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, cops and detectives and people like ambulance officers have a, a much tougher um, emotional uh, sort of mountain to climb when it comes to what they see. But journalists, I, I think similarly, you know, they do get um, an insight into pretty horrible circumstances. They're mm. often, you know, first on scene in, in, in some cases. They see a lot of what the cops see. Um, and perhaps they're not supported as much, I would say, as well. So they're sort of left to muddle through and and to be kind of selfish and to sort of have the expectation that they will overcome any emotion and just, you know, report the story. So I think there's a bit of guilt that can come along with that sometimes. And, and I guess they, particularly these days where, you know, the internet is so invasive and prolific and you can really ruin and upend someone's entire world with um, any kind of reputational damage or insinuation or whatever the sort of story might lead to, it's it's a lot of responsibility that you're penning, you know, um, the fate of someone by doing your job. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in journalism that I, I'm not sure people kind of think about that often. Um, but it is, yeah, a bit of a fine line and, and, and a big, yeah, big responsibility. It is a big responsibility. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And it's also, I feel it's become, and it's somewhere there's a quote, 
I think um I think it's from um Ollie's mum somewhere. She's talking about how she thinks print journalism is better because there's an, uh, an anonymity in the byline, and I like that as well because that's now we now live in this era where gone are the days where in the seventies or you know not even even the nineties when it was a case of you know you read the paper you'd see a name unless you know that person's face. Whereas now everyone's by virtue, just even being a print journalist in the guardian and they would still have the picture of their face. And it's become much more of this sort of public persona as well and how you're perceived and how you're no longer able to hide behind that, that line that I do really like the anonymity of a byline. Talk a little bit about that, Sarah, because that's something as well that obviously plays on Ollie's mind too. Yeah, I think I've actually was listening to, something um, this morning that was sort of delving into this topic so it's it's def- definitely top of mind but I think it's a tricky line for journalists these days because their job is all about tracking down information and you know speaking to people so that they can connect the dots and present what they believe is the sort of the truth to their audience to get that information the channels these days are essentially Platforms like Twitter and Facebook, um, Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, all of the the sort of standard connection points that people are using, um, and you know, they they want to be first um, with the information, so they want to be watching news break, they want to sort of see who knows what, so they've kind of got to be there and be participating in those environments to do their job, I would say, properly or to at least feel as if they're um, equal with their peers. Um, but those same platforms are the ones that can be just, you know, absolutely horrible places for journalists to exist on. Um, and they do cop, like, the most incredible amount of abuse um, with people that don't agree with the way that they've presented what they would often argue is fact, um, what the way that they've just decided to depict a story. So they're definitely open to so much more criticism these days. And I you know, I haven't spoken to a lot of people that were journalists many decades ago, but I'd hazard a guess that they just did not receive that type of um, constant criticism, for one, like the frequency of the feedback, um, the judgment, the personal attacks, um, the accusations of um, subjectivity or bias, like all of those things. And I just can't see how you could completely block that out. Mm. So I think the biggest concern I've got with the way that I guess the world works from a journalistic point of view now is that these poor people need to write, you know, write the truth, do their jobs, present the facts, um, all of the kind of nothing's changed from their job description, but everything around it's changed. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think it would be very difficult to not second guess yourself sometimes and particularly if you've weathered a, a crazy, you know, Twitter storm or, uh, trolling online, you, you surely would be then writing or presenting your next piece with sort of a bit of a sense of how it's going to be received. Mm. And, yeah, I just think that brings a whole new element into journalism that um, I don't necessarily think is a good layer. Mm. I think that, yeah, I think you, I think that it could potentially be maybe a combination of there's just no longer any sort of reverence or respect really for sort of, sort of print journalists, unfortunately, as a, again, kind of part and parcel of what you're talking about there where this Twitter platform isn't just for, you know, isn't just respected, unfortunately, and it enables people to air any of their grievances, no matter how kind of absurd or horrifically offensive they are directly with 
with someone, whereas there might have been some sort of um, barriers beforehand. Now the ease in which communication, which can also be this tool that can be used and crimes can be solved years later by podcasters interviewing, but at the same time, respected journalists are kind of finding themselves much more in the firing line than they probably were about 15, 20 odd years ago. Yeah, I think I think there's sort of, it comes in waves. Like you look back at the last couple of years and I think a lot of people would say that it's been a great couple of years for journalists. Like they've really been at the forefront of, yeah, sort of a lot of historical cases that have ended up coming back into the mainstream and being solved or at least being progressed. Um, it's it's not been it's not been a bad time for journalists in from a credibility perspective in many ways. Um, and I think some of the work that the journalists did um, in America over the last few years covering sort of you know, the, the Trump um, reign and how that played out, you know, they they worked, A, very hard, but B, I think did, did seek to constantly kind of present the truth. But there's just, I think, an, a massive murkiness in that industry now where real journalists versus sort of quasi-journalists and what makes you a journalist is perhaps a little bit less clear. Um, so I think that always complicates an industry when people aren't even sure within it how to classify themselves um, because so many people have, you know, websites and blogs and podcasts and all kinds of things. And I'm sure a lot of them would say, well, I'm a journalist because I public, you know, I publicize a message, but I guess a lot of journalists that have been around for a long time would probably not agree with that. So it, I think it's just sort of changed the game entirely. Um, and like I said, you know, some, some good things, I think some really positive developments and then other things that are probably, more uh, of a setback. Very much, very, very much so. It's kind of hard to report journalism and uh, construct it within the, the framework of what is seem seemingly truthful when the president themselves denounces you as giving fake news and sort of stuff like that. I imagine it's a bit of a uphill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. I think um, it's the fake news thing, you know, I guess is a whole other kettle of fish. But, yeah, definitely um, the idea that journalists can be sort of lying um, doesn't help the cause. Definitely not. Tell me a little bit about Cooper Sarah, I really wanted to hear from your words because I really like that character and I wanted to know a little bit about what he sort of represents because at one point I feel early on he kind of uh, ex explains something like what's the effect of po po podcasting is quality journalism and I was like I wonder if he sort of epitomized that for you or if that was the springboard for which you kind of created this character. Yeah I think look Cooper is younger than Ollie not mm you know, heaps younger than Ollie in some ways, but I think just really represents a whole new era of journalism. Um, he definitely thinks he's a journalist. He definitely thinks he's set for a big career in journalism. And to Ollie, he's just this irritation because he's everything that she thinks is wrong with the future of her, you know, precious industry. Um, and it's not personal. It's just professional. And mm. I think he kind of feels like, people like Cooper who are running around with iPhones and recorders and, and that's kind of that, are just getting in the way of what everyone should be focusing on. So, yeah, he's very um, optimistic. He's very enthusiastic. He's definitely really naive. But, you know, he's well-intentioned and he is just as passionate about the story as Ollie is. They just are coming at it from a different perspective um, and probably with a slightly different perspective on um, what people need to know and when. 
Mm. So, you know, he's all about, um, you know, fast access, um, getting things to people quickly. She believes in, you know, more of a measured approach. Like they've just got a different philosophy, I guess, on how information needs to be managed and, and what the responsibility of a journalist is. So um, I think, it, you know, he really represents the, the new um, generation coming through and she's kind of desperately holding on to what she's worked really hard to create, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense. Like the idea that um, someone with sort of very little experience can come in and be just as valuable to a newsroom as someone that's been there for over a decade is it's a scary thought, I guess. Um, but I think a lot of industries are sort of grappling with that um, unevenness and what does experience mean if you don't know how to work all the new tools and devices, like what, what matters more? And so, yeah, I think, I think it's just really interesting to explore how we manage like youth versus experience in, in categories that are changing so quickly. Yeah, so true. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with like how I sort of interpreted it as well and that um, Ollie is someone that's obviously, a, I'm trying to find a less sort of trite expression than paid her dues, but she's paid her dues and ascended to where she is for years of, of hard work and proving herself. Um, whereas Cooper, again, like what you said with, um, and this is kind of endemic of the, the times as well. Uh, a person could come along with very little discernible experience on paper and still be considered an equal and, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's, I guess it's a scary time and a changing of the guard as it kind of were. Yeah, and I think um, I'm, a, I'm like I'm really quite obsessed with this idea that like 10, 15 years ago we sort of like we really missed the boat with um, how we make people value what is on the internet. Mm. So there was just like, this explosion of content, and so much of it was uh, free. But it was only free because advertising was funding it. So people, I think, got confused about the fact that it was free when they didn't kind of factor in the fact that they were actually paying for it. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's no, no different to the newspaper. Like ads have always been in the newspaper, but because you hand it over a few dollars, you, you never sort of felt like the newspaper was free, even though it was massively subsidised by advertising. And then I think when the internet came along and, and you kind of could load up pages and they were sort of free, we've just, it's it's really rewired our brains, I think, collectively as to what we think we should be paying for. Mm -hmm. um, so photos and imagery and um, illustrations and things that we can just screen grab and use, like we just, we don't, I guess, res respect them as much or sort of see the value of things. And journalism and content, like in particular, um, to some extent, you know, podcasts and things like that too. There's just like all this stuff that we can so just yeah. get, and yeah, and I think um, we've gotten used to getting it for for free, and it's really, I think it's really interesting. You know, every time um, some of those platforms do like a, a software update, people are up in arms about they've changed the layout and they hate the new iOS and I hate this and I hate that. And it's like you don't you don't pay for it anyway. Like it's mm. not yours to to sort of be complaining about but we've gotten so used to kind of having all these things that um I think it's confusing and like so I think someone like Ollie kind of understands that things are different and like there's less money and funding so people make like Cooper makes sense because they're, they're cheaper and they can mm. be more agile but she's grieving that too because it seems like a sad thing to be sort of admitting that it's got to that point I guess um 
and you know spoiler for ollie like it gets worse <laughs> so 2020 probably feels quite quite well funded i imagine in comparison to 2021 for most journalists very much well uh, that um that thing we were talking about before with the the if it's free i it, i'm i mean you're like old school advertising exec and stuff like that you probably know that it's, it's it's when it's free the consumer is what's being being charged or what the product is or something worse to that effect i'm mangling that but i think you know what i'm saying like in terms of if, if you're able to use something for free then it's your information that's being collected or something yeah it's your um information or your attention mm. so you know advertisers um it's just all about access and it's all about um, eyeballs and getting to the right eyeballs or the right ears and so if you're listening to a radio station and they play an ad then they they think that you're the person that might buy what they're trying to sell and if that keeps you on um that that funds the you know the music that you listen to for 26 of the 30 minutes that don't have ads um you know you put up with that so it's it's like a trade-off that everyone's been happy to deal with for a really long time but then I think the internet sort of did tip things on its head because there was just lots of sites that were not necessarily covered in ads to start with um, and you didn't pay for them. Um, so, yeah, it just, it just changed the model. And I think it definitely, from a um, like art and content point of view, I think it's, yeah, just been, it's a different thing to navigate when you've got all this stuff that you feel like you can just get really quickly the thought of having to then go and pay for it seems seems odd, you know, music and, and movies and things like that. And I think, you know, some of the streaming platforms have kind, of, have kind of sorted that out now and got that right again so people get what they pay for and they actually do transact and get something in return. Um, but there's still a few industries and, and channels that I think are, are trying to work out how to catch up and monetize what they're selling and what they're providing. One sort of... Uh, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about is the resources and the availability and ease in which people can research. And, you know, that's kind of the harkening back to what we've touched on if the internet sleeps. That's all well and good. And that's true. I mean, even though it obviously the saturation means that the quality or veracity of what's, what's being said is entirely much more questionable. But I feel that one thing that kind of um, I noticed was recurrent throughout um, kind of almost like a, I don't want to say it was a mentor student type situation with Cooper and, and um, Ollie and Cooper, because I feel it wasn't, even though, you know, they both had different respect for each other. But you can only do so much behind a computer, particularly if you're going to be a true crime investigative journalist, and then you've actually got to get to the point where you've got to go down and beat down doors as well. And one point I really kind of liked about it, I don't want to, I don't want to say it exactly, but it was a kind of funny use of a, an alias that Cooper used. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to ruin that joke because I laughed at it. <laughs> but in terms of, uh, learning that sort of stuff. And Cooper obviously faces like this, this sort of moral dilemma type situation. And I think that um, Ollie says something not not brutal, but kind of like a reality check of, you know, you're going to have to toughen up if you want to be a sort of true crime journalist. Talk a little bit about that, sir, because I think it's all well and good to kind of be a podcaster and do this sort of stuff in the comfort of your own home. But if you want to go on unearth cases, or I feel like with what you've kind of given an example of Ollie and the sort of investigation there, then you kind of need to toughen up when you're going to go and knock down doors and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a journalist, but from what I can gather and from what I've sort of been told, mm. they often are very much on the beat of the cops. So, you know, if the cops are going to pretty dark and grim places, they're, they're there with them as well. Um, the difference, I, I guess, is that they have a they have the, the master of the news cycle to sort of report to. So 
they have different deadlines than the cops do. The cops just have a genuine deadline to solve the case as quickly as they possibly can. They have to sleep um, and eat and things like that, but they don't have an actual kind of timeline that they're working to um, the way that a journalist does. So, you know, I think they do end up um, being kind of back in the office a little bit more and having a bit more of a routine um, and meetings that are sort of structured. But apart from that, I think they are often on the road. They are often talking to people. Um, they're, they're sort of solving the, the crime and trying to work out what happened, not to convict someone necessarily, but just to sort of understand it in their own minds. So they'll, yeah, do lots of interviews and go to a lot of the the, the scenes of the crime, you know, that the cops will. Um, obviously things like press conferences um, and any kind of public um, piece around that case or story that they're working on and lots and lots of research. So whether it's desk research, um, you know, online or whether they will go and speak to people that used to know somebody and get kind of character accounts and things like they are essentially kind of solving solving the crime but just with a slightly less um, involved, I guess, manner um, and, you know, not having any expectation that they're actually going to catch someone at the end or do anything physical along the way <laughs> apart from the occasional, you know, site location visit or something like that. Well, kind of, yeah, I'd like to think that that always happens, but it doesn't always happen particularly in uh, in some of your books. But, yeah, I think that I was I was wondering because I just wanted the research that you actually put into your books there, Sarah, because I was so impressed by the kind of authenticity of the, the depiction of journalists within this, particularly given this sort of uh, interesting time period within journalism and there's like the, the more sort of advent popularity or emergence of podcasting compared to print journalism and some would argue that that's kind of a, a, a wilting at that stage and I wondered is, is, it, is it the same sort of people in which you've befriended and used, utilized over your other books or is it more research that you've done within the course of this period or how's all that gone down and how did you go about making it so it was an authentic authentic feeling journalist? Um, look, lots of different bits and pieces and not like a particularly structured approach either okay. so it's probably not a very helpful <laughs> helpful answer but um I mean I did some work experience in um, media rooms so I mm. did have that um first-hand experience but that was a long time ago so yeah. I knew that it was needing to be updated but it was good just from a reference point around how the teams come together um and then I did spend quite a bit of time going to court cases um, and watching the journalists at those court cases. So, I mean, that was sort of twofold. Watching crimes um, and hearings and rulings was really interesting for specific scenes in the book anyway, mm. but also just watching the way that the journalists interacted with um, police, the police force that were there, the way they interact with each other, um, hanging back at a few press conferences. Like, you can kind of, I think, see and get quite a lot um out of how that all kind of, you know, works from an ecosystem point of view. Mm. Um, I did um, I did have a, a really kind journalist that let me tag along with him um, for a day and answered lots of my questions, which was really helpful, and just sort of sense-checking a few things. But, um, yeah, a lot of it's just observation, and I did, I did go and um, review a little bit of the chat I guess that was coming through at the time when the podcast world was taking off and there's you know some really interesting quotes from um, different journalists and people in the media just sort of with their point of view on whether or not it was sort of something to be worried about or, or mindful of so that was helpful 
Um, so yeah, old old news articles are kind of quite good for just a general read of the the sense of what people were thinking at the time. So yeah, it's a big combination of of lots of different things, and then just fact checking um, storylines, like just mm. making sure that legally plausible that things medically make sense, um, that kind of thing. So it's yeah, it's a bit of a mix of stuff. Oh, I would have loved to have heard what some of those journalists, uh, old school journalists, said about about this pesky podcast thing. I think there would have been some very choice words that would have been unprintable in print media, maybe. Yeah, I think it's the same as what they said about the internet. So, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think um, these new these new media forms uh, they do tend to take off. So that's the hot tip for whatever's going to come next, I guess. So, but then sometimes they don't really kind of like. I remember with e-readers and e-books that was like that was going to be the thing where it was pretty much the apocalypse for brick and mortar bookshops physical books everyone was like you know performing last rites on one another saying this is the end of print print books as we know it you know it was a good run and it was just it just kind of it didn't really it didn't really catch on as well i guess very different but kind of like seemingly like this new sort of colossus thing that's developing oh my god it's at the end of life as we know it and then it kind of didn't really come to fruition like that i guess yeah i think some things end up coexisting mm. um which you know i guess is kind of a, a good outcome because it means mm. that people like different things they get to choose um but i think anything that provides quick and easy access is is probably going to play a role in in our current world because it's it's all about that i guess and that's sort of what people are wanting um and easy easy convenience is is pretty popular too so yeah i mean i, I think you know books and ebooks are both good i think newspapers and podcasts are both good like you mm-hmm. know pros and cons for each thing but the business models have to be able to sustain them and that's where it can get tricky yeah true but like i feel like now it's kind of gotten to a point where maybe when podcasts had really kind of like boot started booming, it was a much more a case of that. They were kind of met with skepticism from serious, serious media outlets. But now the majority of us, majority of Guardian the Age all have their own sort of podcast programs. I know because I've voraciously devoured them and I think a lot of Australia does as well. So it has come this, uh, whatever contrast or sort of uh, differences there were have been kind of settled in some respects because there's a bit of a, a marriage of the two. Yeah, and I think once one brand or company reaches out and sort of puts a stake in the ground mm. it becomes it sets the sort of scene for everybody else and you're either there or you're not so yeah it's it's tricky at the moment because you've you've kind of got to be everywhere and that is really hard to sustain I think very much so so tell me what it was like writing a standalone novel um after being with Jeremy Woodstock for, for three novels what was that uh was that was that a liberating experience was that a daunting experience was it a combination of the two was it something completely different what was that like yeah I think it was good I think I I ended up really enjoying it I found this book difficult to write um in in lots of ways but mm. Never, never, an, never, sort of an, an actual total sort of nightmare. <laughs> Throw it outside again, which I have done. Um, so it was, it was quite. Uh, it flowed pretty well, and that was sort of right from the start. Probably took me a little while just to get into the first three chapters. I, I know I remember writing them, like rewriting them um, a couple of times. But yeah, all in all, I think once I found the the Ollie character um, and felt like I had settled into 
a bit of a groove with her. It was um, a pretty straightforward process. I mean, the books are they're quite complicated, so they're always tricky to kind of figure out and write and then rewrite and make it all make sense. But that's, I think, just all my books. Um, but, yeah, it was nice. I, I, I think I liked writing something someone new and it was nice creating like a whole new world of people. Like I find that really fun. I really just, I think that is just the best part about writing fiction is just getting to make up all these people um, and then have people say, oh, I really liked that one. And, you know, it's quite funny because they're just, they're all made up. So I don't know. I, I really, really like that. And I do probably like a lot of the characters in this book particularly. Like I think that they're, you know, I, I enjoyed writing them and I and I hope people would enjoy reading them, but some of them feel very, yeah, well-rounded, I guess. So I'm mm. proud of that and, yeah, it was good fun. I'd put that, yeah, well-rounded is a good way of putting it, particularly obviously Ollie Groves I really enjoyed reading. And tell me with your process, because, yeah, you're, you're, there was like more twists in this, in this book than in a packet of twisties and I wanted to know... <laughs> So when you say like, what do you do? Do you, do you Shrivener or is whatever that's called, or do you have a do you have a spreadsheet? Is it all just in the mind of Sarah, and then what you go back and then okay, how's that work? Yeah, it's, it's very old school, like very yeah. like Ollie's old school journalistic process. Like I don't, I don't plot anything really. Like every now and again, I'll kind of write a few things in a notebook, but um, yeah, I don't have spreadsheets and I don't have um proper sort of yeah Scrivener programs or, mm. or any of those fancy things I just kind of have lots of ideas and then I think it starts to sort of get to a point where I've got enough ideas that I'm like okay I've really got to start writing this down or I'll forget things now and that's ten that tends to be like when I kind of write the first half of a book and then I find I get a bit stuck because it's uh, it's hard to then work out what to sort of do to pull it all together so I have a little break and then kind of figure out the next half and then <laughs> go back and try and write it. But yeah, I don't. It's not the most. Um, it's not the most sophisticated process, that's for sure. So are you a are you a pantser or? Yeah. yeah well, okay. I think so. I would say yes, except that I do like I do plan a lot of it out in my head. Mm. But that is the, that is the only place. So I definitely don't write uh, plans or you know. Um, plot it all out on a bit of paper or anything like that. I just kind of have a pretty clear plan in my head for key key beats and key things that happen and what makes sense to kind of link together. And then that that's what I kind of try and write down. I'm taking off my invisible hat to you because I don't know I don't know I don't know how you do that. My hat goes off to you with that. Like yeah, for sure. Look, there's a question I wanted to end with Sarah that I always like to ask. You mentioned like there was there was, you know, issues with the writing of the first three chapters for the housemate but I always want to know when I speak to writers is if there's been a period whether it's you've you've been at the the proverbial crossroads of the craft and uh whether it was one instance or it was a period and you said to yourself my goodness what am I doing I could stop this right now I could put down the pen and never return to it if that was the case, if you've ever experienced that, was there any one particular instance? And if so, like how did you prevail or you haven't really encountered that? I'd like to hear that no one's really encountered that. It's just that I know the kind of journey and every single person I speak to seems to have some sort of instance like that. Oh, I think I've definitely had like several hundreds of instances where I've kind of gone, oh, God, this is all too hard. Like I don't know that this makes any sense for me to keep doing um, but I guess 
It depends on when in the process that happens. Like mm. if it happens towards the end of a book being drafted, I mean, you, you're inevitably going to finish because you're so close you kind of have to. Uh, I've definitely quit books, like quit books that I've started that just haven't worked out and I can't make them make sense. Um but, yeah, it can be super frustrating. Like I don't really ever get writer's block. Like I can always write, but I definitely get um, myself into a twist where I'm like I just can't figure out how to fix this. It's normally when I've already written a lot of stuff down. It doesn't tend to be for me in the first draft. It's it's the editing and the fixing things that, you know, I've set up that don't work and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, like super frustrating <laughs> um, and definitely question like my ability my ambition, um, my, yeah, talent, my ideas, like all of it. Um, but I guess finishing is so um, appealing mm. that you've, the goal itself becomes the goal. Like I just, you want to finish because, you've, you you know, you don't want to have sort of worked so hard to not be able to turn around and kind of tick it off. So no matter how frustrated I've gotten once there's like a tipping point critical mass of words I'm kind of like well I've, I'm committed to this thing now so I can whinge about it and I can like kind of waste the day that I've got or the you know hour that I've got or whatever time I've got or I can just write the next thing that I can think of and skip this bit if it's not working and I'll come back to it later so yeah I try not to get stuck um on any one part of a book like if that's not working there'll be another part to fix so go and fix that part and then come back and fix this bit and it's worked evidently it's worked because there's there's, there's been a few times now where the books have come out and you've prevailed so it's it's all worked out in the end it's all come out in the wash yeah so far so far it's worked so i'll, I'll stick with the strategy of just keep keep going <laughs> that's all you can do Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me tonight on the program uh, on this seemingly weirdly bitterly cold line. I assume that you're cold in Melbourne there or colder than I am. But, uh, yeah, been absolute pleasure talking to you on the program. Yeah, no, um, thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice to chat to you. So, everyone, there you have it. That was me talking with uh, Sarah Bailey about her first standalone book, her latest book and first standalone book, The Housemaid. So, huge thanks to Sarah for appearing on the program, discussing that in detail with me. As always, as you come to expect, and I think you would expect nothing less, I will put into the link slash bio of this particular episode the link to or the url whatever you have whatever semantics you want to use whatever description uh for the alan nunwin publishing house which is sarah's publishing house so you can get a copy of uh the housemate as well as the trilogy of the general woodstock trilogy as well which sarah is well known for so again thank you to sarah for talking to me on the program now be sure to pick up your copy from alan nunwin as well follow the links there or even go to your brick and mortar bookshops within Sydney and Melbourne in particular, pay close attention to them, I believe, because I think that uh, a lot of us still in lockdown, and particularly our beloved brick and mortar bookshops aren't doing as well as they normally would outside of this lockdown period, even if restrictions are easing. So do them a favor by your patronage. Uh, and yeah, by all means, please get a copy of Sarah Bailey's The Housemate, as well as her Gemma Woodstock trilogy as well. A huge thank you to you, as always, for listening to this episode and all other episodes of the pod podcast. I'm going to trip over that word. I don't know why. Um, 
Yeah. I'm always, it's, it's always, uh, it tickles the cockles of my heart to see just uh, everyone going back and listening to all those old episodes there of like the first few from, you know, Monica McInerney, Fiona McIntosh, so on and so forth. So I really appreciate you guys for doing that and for listening to them. And if you haven't already, please be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify, uh, SoundCloud as well, as that's where you're listening to this also. And yeah, stay tuned. A lot more episodes coming out your way as well. And yeah, please stay safe. Get jabbed if you haven't already. And please keep listening to episodes. A lot more coming out your way. Thank you eternally for your patronage. <laughs>